0: If uh, you have your Bibles, please grab them. We're going to be at Mark 15. uh, Mark 15, we're going to be going all the way to chapter 16, uh, verse 8. Here at Church of the Lord, we believe studying the Bible is an incredibly important thing. Um, Biblical illiteracy is uh, a growing thing within uh, Christian circles, meaning we don't know what the Bible says, and frankly, we don't have enough people talking about what it means uh, and how we can properly apply it to our lives. And so what we believe at Church of the Lord is uh, we want to teach straight through the Bible, so we want to pick a book of the Bible, and then we're just going to work through it, and we'll ta- it will take us a long time. Uh, we're in the book of Mark right now. We just entered uh, chapter two after, um, I don't know, like three, two, three months, um, and we'll probably be in the book of Mark potentially for the next year, so um, we don't like to skip things. We like to get right in there, figure out what's going on, figure out what is culturally relevant, what's going on there, so that we can understand it. So we're going to be in Mark 15 today. Uh, Mark 15... Is uh, the account, the passion narrative uh, Helping us understand what is it that Jesus went through What is it that he experienced And then leading into his resurrection Which is why we celebrate today Because Jesus is no longer dead He is alive And I'm going to provide some uh, objections That culturally people have said Against the resurrection of Jesus And then I'm also going to touch on um, Some historical uh, evidences of the resurrection of Jesus, also biblical evidences, and then also uh, some other things. Just for some of us who are more analytical, trying to figure out did this thing actually happen, I'm um, hopefully in some ways going to prove that to you today through what we read in the Bible. Um, if you're a map person, if you like geography, this will be helpful to you. Um, this is a map showing us the areas in which Jesus uh, was. So he started much of his ministry up in Galilee, which is up around Nazareth, Cana, and Capernaum. Uh, we learned recently that Capernaum is actually where Jesus considered his home. He went back to his home, so this is where he was in Capernaum. And then as his ministry progresses, he moves down uh, to Jerusalem, which is just to the upper left of the Dead Sea there. And Jesus is now in Jerusalem. Um, the Passion narrative uh, for the last week of Jesus' is uh, life Uh, prior to his death is spent in Jerusalem. So this is where we are. This is a bird's eye view of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, So again, this is going to be a bird looking down, if they can get that high. As you can see in the upper right, we have the temple. Um, to the right of that, you're going to see the Garden of Gethsemane. This is where Jesus prays to God that he would be um, not have to go through the pain of the cross, but he says, if it is your will, God, I will do it. Uh, so then we can travel down to the left. From there we have the temple. Um, upwards to the left is possible Golgotha, but the understanding of the traditional Golgotha, where Jesus actually is killed on the cross, is further over there to the left, if you can see that, traditional Golgotha. And then as you move down, there's another couple of places, Herod's Palace, um, where Pilate spent some time. So this is hopefully just going to give you a bit of an understanding of where we are when we're studying Mark 15 and uh, into chapter 16. Um, This is um, the traditional Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. So let's start in uh, Mark 15, and as I said, we're just going to work through this. I'll mention a few things. Typically, we'd spend more time on each of these passages, but today we want to simply examine uh, the beauty and the wonders of the cross and then move there the resurrection. So, uh, chapter 15, prior to this, Jesus has spent his last supper with his disciples where he instituted what we now celebrate in the church, communion. Um, he's been in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, he has been taken before the council, uh, has been tried, um, falsely accused, Uh, And then Peter denies Jesus. Many of us have heard that story before. Peter denies Christ. Uh, Jesus says, someone will deny me. Peter actually ends up doing it. The rooster, cock-a-doodle-doos, signifying, yes, this is in fact what you have done. So we're picking up there. Jesus is now taken to Pilate. Verse 1 of chapter 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and with the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. The reason that they are delivered him over to Pilate is because they do want him to be crucified. Um, in Jewish traditional law, they did not have the rights to declare crucifixion over somebody. And so the charge that they're bringing against them is blasphemy. He is saying that he is the son of God, declaring equality with God. And the Jews and the Jewish religion of that time is not, is not okay to say. You don't just go walking around saying that you're the son of God, making yourself equal to God. So they want to try him uh, under Pilate, and they're trying him under the belief that he is the king of the Jews. Uh, so if you were to also declare you're the king of the Jews, you're saying Herod is not. So they're trying to catch Jesus in something here. But the truth is that he is the king of the Jews, right? There will be a time where we as Christians have to stand up for what we believe in, regardless of what our nation and our government says. And my belief is that day is coming quicker than we would like to say it with a few things. Let's move on. And Pilate asked him, This is what they're trying him on. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, how do you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Typically in these court systems, the man who was being tried would get angry, would freak out, would try to in every way not be silent. And anyway, try to get out of the charge that had been brought against him. Notice what Jesus does. He remains silent. This is also a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, which is in the Old Testament, which says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he, Jesus, opened not his mouth. How many times have you maybe had a charge brought against you? And you got... You start fighting. No, that's not the truth. That's not the case. Jesus remains silent. He shows us the way of passiveness in this situation. Let's continue on, verse 6. Now at the feast, he, that is Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. This is Pilate's way of uh, really getting the people to like him more. I'll release somebody to you. Who shall it be? He did this every year at this feast. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder uh, in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews, the charge that is brought against Jesus? Do you want us to release him? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Out of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him released for them Barabbas instead. Insurrection, the charge that was brought against Barabbas is a, a revolt or rising up um, some sort of violent attack against the ruler or, or the powers of that time. So Barabbas is g- guilty of that. He's guilty of murder. And so Pilate says, who do you want me to release to you? And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? Notice they don't give an answer, but they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. How many decisions do we make to appease the people around us? Pilate's guilt is the same guilt that many of us feel when we try to do something because we're being affected by the influence of others. Now, it's interesting to note, to you and I, crucifixion is something we read about in the story of Jesus, but I don't think we really understand completely what crucifixion was in that day. When the people yelled, crucify him, they understood what crucifixion was. The old way of crucifixion, prior to the Romans, was impalement. A a, a long rod or stick would be put through somebody's body. And it would impale them. In the 6th century, the Persians, especially Darius, crucified 3,000 Babylonians in 518 B.C. In 332 B.C., this is moving forward, it goes from larger to less once we get to zero, and after that 80. Alexander the Great, the man from history, crucified 2,000 people. At that point, under Alexander, the transition from impalement to crucifixion happened. Because he was the master of terror and dread. You can study this in your history books. In 71 BC, former Gladiator Spartacus and 120,000 prisoners fell in battle to the Romans, which resulted in 6,000 men being crucified along the shoulder of the highway for 120 miles. Can you imagine? Uh, Romans, who kind of then took over the idea of persecute or crucifixion, reserved it as the most painful mode of execution for the most despised people, such as slaves, the poor, Roman citizens guilty of treason. Uh, it was believed to be the first to crucify an actual cross. Uh, there was two forms of the cross. There was the, the Teu, which was a capital T cross. In Latin, then number two was the lower T cross. The stripe was probably permanent, while the parturbulum, which is the cross piece, was carried by each person. So the the stake, the main um, piece that went into the ground, and then the other, the part, the cross piece, was carried by each of these people to their to their uh, death. Um, Jesus, as a young boy, may have viewed crucifixions in Judea Due to a Jewish uprising against Rome That resulted in a mass execution of 2,000 people Our English word excruciating Was originally created uh, to explain the pain of crucifixion A victim was affixed by nails or ropes It was death by asphyxiation, which is deprivement of air They hung usually from up to three to four hours For as long as nine days So the Romans knew that it wasn't an immediate death. This was going to be something long and fortuitous. Um, It was debated archaeologically right now whether or not there were seats affixed underneath the buttocks, ensuring a lot lengthier and most painful death. So if you put a seat underneath the person so they have to sit on it, it would keep them from breathing a little bit longer, but ultimately they're going to be killed. Um, It was always done in the wide open, public places. It'd be like nailing a naked, bloody person in front of our strip malls or in front of Stone Road Mall. People would walk by, often they were crucified at eye level so you could spit in their face as you walked by mocking them. Um, Jews considered crucifixion the most horrible of deaths. In Deuteronomy 20, 21, 1, verses 22 to 23, um, it was a hanged man is cursed by God. So needless to say, the Jews knew what was being suggested when they shouted, crucify him. It wasn't like they didn't know what it was. They knew what they were doing. They knew that he was, really, he was innocent. But no, we don't like this man enough. He's such a threat to our empire. He needs to be crucified. Now, Pilate, wishing to satisfy them, has Jesus scourged. Now, in scourging, the victim would be um, stripped naked. They would be affixed to uh, a piece of wood with their hands above their heads to expose their complete back and their buttocks. There would then be two soldiers on either side of the victim who would each have a cat of nine tails or a whip that had six long leather pieces that came off. Um, Parts of those were pieces of metal and then parts of those were larger balls of metal. The larger balls of metal were supposed to soften the skin or to soften the meat. Like that, of if you are uh, having a set of steaks, you want to beat the meat so that it tenderizes it a little bit. Um, and then on other pieces were pieces of metal and glass that were literally for the purpose of when they when they hit somebody and when they whip somebody, literally pieces of the skin and muscle were to be ripped off. So Pilate is trying to say, let me satisfy them by potentially scourging him. Maybe that would be enough. And as we read in some of the other accounts, it's not enough. A lot of times men were actually killed through this scourging not the case with Jesus let's continue on this is what's happening thus far verse 16 and the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters and they called together the whole battalion, this whole battalion would have been about 600 men at full strength and they clothed him in purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns they put it on him And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his own clothes on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. Our culture these days is very affixed upon bullying. Um, it's, It's rare, if you haven't heard, of the bullying culture that's going on in a lot of our elementary schools. And for many of us, this riles us up, Right? You can't treat somebody like that, a poor kid. The beating, the mocking that is done to Jesus by 600 powerful Roman soldiers. It's far greater than any of the mocking that many of our kids go through in schools nowadays. This is how they treated an innocent Jesus. Verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Um, if Jesus, uh, we, we read in other tellings, had taken that cross first uh, for himself, uh, we read he then fell. Uh, to the ground, the comparative to this pain of him falling with that 100 pound beam on his back is comparable to that of a car accident without wearing a seatbelt a head-on collision. That's the pain Jesus would have experienced when he was taken to the ground Um, Simon of Cyrene takes the cross for him, the the cross piece, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha which means place of the skull Uh, I have a picture here of uh, Golgotha you can visit, uh, he would have been affixed on the top of this mountain, the believed Golgotha, um, it was called Golgotha, as I said, place of the skull, um, some of these uh, holes would sit, affixate to cause people to believe that it looks like a skull, so maybe it was called Golgotha, place of the skull, because that's actually what it looked like. You can go to Jerusalem nowadays and you can visit this place, um, it's not a fake um, fictitious place. This is an actual real place. One of the reasons C.S. Lewis converted to Christianity is because in the Bible he said it's also a historical book. We read things in here that actually happened. Uh, the people that were emperors and, and um, leaders at the time were indeed there. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take um, to actually be crucified, they would take five to seven inch tough metal spikes and they would put them through the body's most sensitive nerves, which is in the hands or the feet. Um, at this point, Jesus' body would have twitched uh, involuntarily uh, and he would have labored to breathe. We read that then they cast lots uh, for his garments, which fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm twenty-two eighteen. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Notice Jesus crucified the two, in fact, guilty men, him and innocent men. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. They're taunting him. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. The two robbers that were killed with him also fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 53 which said, Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Continue on, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, "Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani," which means, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" He was quoting Psalm twenty-two. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. The sponge was most likely used in a public restroom to clean the toilets. This is what they're using for Jesus. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way He breathed his last. He said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. It's an odd thing that actually Mark would mention women because in those days women were not treated in the same level of equality that they are treated today. This darkness over the land is not an eclipse. Darkness represents lament, uh, as we see in Amos 8, 9-10, to and divine judgment. Um, Jesus, when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me once again? He is repeating that of Psalm 22. Um, so Jesus is a rabbi, I meaning he knows much of the Old Testament. He knows what's going on there. He um, When Jesus uttered a loud cry and yells, It is finished, we read that the curtain of the temple was torn in two, which was removing the separation between the holy place and the most holy place. So in those days, they had this temple, and there was different places set aside for different priests that were allowed to go in each. And this curtain that separated the presence of God from the presence of man was torn at this point, which ultimately indicated God's presence is now with man. It is finished. It is finished. And the centurion would have observed many crucifixions by criminals, but yet there's something about this man, Jesus, and he utters, truly this man is the Son of God. Now, there's a question that many of us might have at this point, is why did Jesus need to die? Why bloodshed and the need for the cross? Like, why do we celebrate that at Easter time? Why do we remember that? What what does that do for me? And what does that do for us? Well, number one, Uh, Historically, from the very beginning of time, a sacrifice needed to be made to cover the sins of people. Back in Leviticus, they would have goats, birds, pigeons, and when the blood was shed, it would cover someone's sins. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So a life needed to be taken to cover the sin." Of a particular person So why there need to be bloodshed? Because a sacrifice needed to be made uh, Number two, wrath needed to be diverted Jesus diverts the act of wrath Of our rightfully angry God from us So that we are loved and not hated God is angry towards sin Do not be deceived God does not like sin He hates it so much He sent Jesus to die on the cross for it To make a way for us Jesus is, or God is ultimately perfect and holy Sin cannot be in his presence. And so by Jesus taking that upon himself, when he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's calling out to his father and he's diverting the wrath that is rightfully ours. The good news for us, the bad news for those who don't believe in this message is that there are consequences for our sin. There are consequences for the things and the decisions we make. Number three, justice is needed. Somebody needs to take it. As I heard the other day, imagine somebody were in your driveway and backs out and hits your gate. A cost is going to come to that. Either you forgive the person and you take on the cost yourself, or they pay for it for you. There's always a cost associated with something, with forgiveness. Justice is needed. The the pain that we feel in our world, the abuse that goes on in our world. This is all justice is needed against these wrong, sinful things. And so a bloodshed was needed. A ransom or a righteousness is needed. Uh, What this means is that Jesus took our sin and gave us his righteousness. It's like he changed and traded places with us. We are guilty. He was not. So he trades places with us. And then a ransom is needed. Jesus' repayment is sufficient enough to erase our debt to God the Father. He is our mediator and redeemer. Now what does this mean we receive from Jesus on the cross? Number one, we receive redemption, which is Jesus has redeemed us from and to many things. Jesus has redeemed us from the curse of the law, Satan and demons, our sinful flesh and our sin. Furthermore, Jesus has redeemed us to eternal life with God, the return of Jesus, and a glorified resurrected body. All through his death on the cross, he gives us that. What? For free. And all we must do is believe in what he has done. Uh, Christus victor, which means Jesus liberates us from the captivity of Satan, sin, and death. The Church of the Lord, we've been learning a lot about the demonic. And what Christ accomplished for us is victory over Satan and his demons. that would like, like nothing more than for us to sin and to go the way of the world. And so Christ accomplishes and defeats that for us. Next word is expiation, which means we, Jesus forgave our sins at the cross and cleanses us from all sins that we have committed and that have been committed against us. Whether you, you be are an atheist, every atheist, whether you'd like to admit it or not, has a level of morality. And you can ask anybody, have you ever sunken beneath that level of morality? Well, yes, of course I have. We are all we believe as Christians that we are sinners in need of a savior. And so Jesus covers that for us. He is the price. Christus exemplar. Jesus then gives us an example to follow. A new life is given to us. And we take up our cross and we daily follow him. And lastly, Jesus on the cross exemplifies for us what it is that is true love. Our world is looking for love. True love. And Jesus on the cross exemplifies that true love gives of yourself for somebody else. True love goes to the cross for somebody else. Imagine somebody in this room giving up their life for you. That would be pretty powerful love. And that is why we celebrate at Easter what Jesus has done for us on the cross and showing us what is true love. Let's continue on. Mark 15, verses 42 to 47. And when evening had come... Since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, he's looking for it, um, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus should have already died. Well, imagine the pain Jesus would have gone through, the scourging, the cross, of course he was going to die. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. The centurion would be the one that would declare this man is actually dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Typically, someone who was crucified was not given... A burial. Typically, they were left upon the cross for birds to come and take the remainders of their body, and then from there the dogs to come. Jesus was given a, a proper burial. Now, how do we know Jesus died? Well, one eyewitnesses uh, in the biblical account. Eyewitnesses. There in Islam, actually, they don't believe that Jesus actually died. They believe he was a twin brother of his was beaten and killed, um, or that he never actually died. Uh, so the beatings that he went through, the scourging, the cross, didn't actually kill him. Um, in this account, we have eyewitness that proved he was actually killed. And then the physical condition, um, it would have been impossible after Jesus had received the pain and torment that he went through for him to actually have physically survived. It would have been like unbelievable for that to have ever have happened. Uh, here's a picture of what some to believe, the tomb of Jesus. Um, again, you can go to Jerusalem and you can spend some time there. Catholics love this place. Um, you're welcome. If you ever decide to go on a trip to Israel, check out Jerusalem. Check out Jesus' tomb. Um, it is a place that does it certainly. Well, let's move on to some good news. Some of you are maybe like, uh, where do we go from here? When the Sabbath was passed, So Jesus was crucified on the Friday, the third day then could have been a Sunday, whether or not it was Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we're not really sure, not going to be held to that, but it was a three-day period. Uh, The Sabbath, they would not have been able to do anything once the sun rose on that Sabbath day, and after the sun was set down, they weren't able to do something, that was the Jewish uh, religious law. So when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Siloam, brought spices, bought spices, so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the tomb for us from the entrance of the tomb? Good question. Good practical question. We're going to get there. There's going to be a stone there. What are we going to do? We are not strong enough. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Thank you, Mark, for that detail. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. No kid. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. But he is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Wow. This is Mark's account of the resurrection. Now, a precursor to what if Jesus is still dead? What does that mean for each of us today? All right. Number one, if Jesus is still dead, Christianity is dead. All right. There is no standing by which we have as Christians because we declare the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus is still dead, Then Christianity is dead. Number two, no savior means no salvation, no forgiveness of sins, and no hope of eternal life. Uh, Jesus is then yet another good but dead man. Um, Like many other religious um, people who began religions, like Muhammad, um, Jesus would yet be just another good but dead man. Uh, He's no help to us in this life because he's dead. (laughs) And we believe that Jesus is alive, but he's no help to us otherwise. And the few billion people who worship Jesus are then gullible. I heard a recent interview with Bono, and he said he believes that Jesus was in fact raised to life because he couldn't believe why there would be a couple billion people in the world that would believe in Jesus and believe that he had risen. Now, if that doesn't uh, get you excited, here's some biblical evidence for the resurrection. Number one, in Isaiah 53, verses 8 to 12 The resurrection of Jesus is prophesied. Jesus himself, actually, while he is here on this earth, tells his disciples that there will be a resurrection. I'll be died, I'll be killed, I'll be murdered, and then I will rise. Uh, Number two, Jesus predicted death and resurrection, as I just alluded to. Uh, Biblical evidence for the resurrection, Jesus did, in fact, die. He was a dead body. Uh, He was not surviving. He did not breathe. He was not breathing. Fourth. Jesus was buried in a tomb that was easy to find. It wasn't like it was hidden. Alright, so biblical evidence for the resurrection, Jesus was buried in a tomb that was easy to find. It wasn't like it was a secluded place that nobody could go find. The women go to go to the tomb, they'd actually place soldiers at the tomb. Jesus appeared physically alive three days after his death. This is the biblical evidence, remember, this is what the Bible is going to tell us, post what we just read. Jesus' resurrected body was the same as his pre-resurrected body. So it wasn't like he changed much. He still had uh, the marks for where he was um, brutally murdered and killed through the mockery and things. But Jesus' resurrected body, it wasn't like he appeared with um, maybe no beard or it wasn't like he appeared the same body. Uh, Jesus' resurrection was recorded in Scripture shortly after it happened. Uh, So Jesus would have resurrected, we believe, somewhere in the 35 to 40 AD range um, and then Mark, in this account, we believe was written shortly thereafter, within a, within a few years. Um, and then Jesus' resurrection was celebrated in the earliest of church creeds. It's not like the resurrection was celebrated hundreds of years later. In the earliest of church creeds, it was begun to be celebrated. Jesus' resurrection convinced his family to worship him as God. Jesus had a younger brother, James. Imagine being the younger brother of Jesus. Jesus... Never sinned. Imagine like when your parents walk into the room and something bad has happened. It was never Jesus' fault. It was always going to be James. Some of you as parents maybe remember your kids doing that. It was never Jesus' fault. So James, I think, had something against them. But following Jesus' resurrection, Jesus, or James actually says, yes, Jesus was the Son of God. He wasn't just this annoying older brother that never did anything wrong. And number 10, Jesus' resurrection was confirmed by his most bitter enemies, Paul, who was initially Saul, who now has written a major portion of the New Testament, killed Christians for a while. And then Paul, who was one of the greatest greatest enemies... um then declared Jesus as resurrected. He believed it too. So if you're going to be the enemy of somebody, you probably wouldn't believe truths about them. Now what's some cir- circumstantial evidence for the resurrection? Again, this is for those analytical types. Some of you already believe it. Good for you. But maybe this is some um, some helpful for future things. The Jesus disciples were transformed. Uh, prior to Jesus' resurrection, they're kind of timid. Uh, Peter denies Jesus. Post this, they are like on fire for Jesus. They're crazy. They're pumped up. Why? Because their rabbi who was dead, Jesus the son of God, was raised back to life. Jesus' disciples remained loyal to him as the Messiah. It wasn't like they, they were like, oh, Jesus the Messiah is gone now. They stayed loyal to him. Uh, number three, disciples had exemplary character. They were just good dudes. And you can read all about these great dudes uh, throughout the rest of the New Testament. Worshipped, worship changed. Um, the day of the week changed. We now don't believe that we need to celebrate on Saturdays. So worship completely changed. Another circumstantial item. Women discovered the tomb. Uh, this is odd because women actually weren't allowed to take, go into a public court and bear witness. So the fact that Mark mentions these women did this proves to us that therefore they can be trusted because it would have been stupid for Mark to say women found them in that culture. He should have said men found them. But women in fact found them. Way to go, women. Uh, Number six, the entirety of early church preaching centered on the resurrection. So it's not like they focused on something else. It was all centered on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Seven, uh, Jesus' tomb was not enshrined. All right? This is really, really key. Because in some of our other world religions, um, temples and founders or people that founded the religions were enshrined. Like this one here uh, is in Judaism. You can go and visit Abraham's tomb in Hebron. So if you're up for that, go to Hebron and visit Abraham's tomb. Uh, Jews don't believe that Jesus was in fact who he says he is, um, so they celebrate Abraham. Uh, In Buddhism, uh, you can go to Buddha's tomb, which is this really neat looking structure. Um, you can go there, and then in Islam, you have Muhammad, and you can go and visit, uh, actually where that little, it's green, it's actually green, it looks black, but it's understood that he was buried under there. Now, Christianity, um, Jesus was our founder, but we got nothing but an empty tomb. Why is that? He's not there! He's alive! That's good news, folks. <laughs> and then... Um, Number eight, got to go through all of these again because I didn't set this up properly, but we'll get there. Number eight, what is it? I know in my notes, but I'm just going to get you happy when we get there. Christianity exploded on the earth. Circumstantial evidence for the resurrection. Christianity exploded. You don't explode about a dead man. You explode because of a risen man. Now, primary objections, in case you're one of these, Jesus did not die, but merely passed out. He didn't actually die. The the brutal scourging, the death on the cross, he didn't actually die. He just passed out. Yeah, okay. Uh, Jesus did not rise and his body was stolen. This was one of the earliest objections. That Jesus' body was stolen. Only we're told later that his physical resurrected body was seen by at least 500 people. Um, And then the primary objection, number three, is a twin brother or lookalike died in Jesus' place. Everything they went through, uh, Judas' kiss on the cheek, it was all fake. It didn't actually happen. So that's the primary objections to Jesus being raised from the dead. Um, And then fourth, Jesus' followers hallucinated his resurrection. Now, this is interesting, and I actually did some good research on hallucination. Um, And I want you to know this Maybe you're not nerdy like me, but I think this is great Okay, so Jesus follows hallucinating Now, a hallucination is typically a private Not a public experience Which means when Jesus appeared to over 500 people That couldn't actually be the case So it couldn't have been a hallucination Uh, Jesus appeared in a variety of times And in a variety of locations Whereas hallucinations are limited to individual times And locations So maybe some of you are having hallucinations lately This is some helpful advice on hallucinations Uh, C, certain types of people are more prone to hallucinations. Jesus appeared to many different personalities. Alright? And then D, all hallucinations ceased after 40 days of Jesus' resurrection. Weird! (laughs) (laughs) Hallucinations tend to continue. Hallucination is a projection of a thought that pre-exists in the mind, but Jews had a conception of resurrection that was that all people at the end of history. So as... Maybe you've had an hallucination. Pre-existed thought in the mind. The Jews, get this, would have thought that resurrection meant everybody at the same time, not one person. So even though Jesus said three days later he will rise, they completely misinterpreted that and thought it was something completely different. So it couldn't have pre-existed in the mind. The fact that Jesus did raise was like, I going How did he do it that way? Now, last section of points, and then we're going to get some people dumped in here. What has the resurrection accomplished for Christians? Jesus is our Messiah, King, who will return to establish his throne on earth. As Christians, yes, we go through pain. Yes, we see death. Yes, we know all of these things are going on. But we believe that because our Jesus is alive, he will return and he will establish his throne on this earth and everything will go back to way it was originally meant to be in Genesis 1 and 2. Revelation 22, 21 and 22 says the new heaven will come to earth. And our world will be restored. All the brokenness will be gone. Pain will be gone. Tears will be gone. Depression will be be gone. Anxiety will be gone. It will be no more when Jesus, our King, our Messiah, returns to this earth. Number two, it's proof that Jesus' teaching was and it's true. When Jesus said, I will rise three days later, he did in fact tell the truth of that. He did rise three days later. So therefore, if he was true about that one, he's probably true about a lot of other things. Hence, he is the son of God. Number three, it means blessings on us as believers. Julie's tumor is almost gone. Amen. If Jesus wasn't alive, that probably wouldn't have happened. But he's alive. Number four, all sins are forgiven once and gore all. For all. All sins are forgiven once and gore all. Mix of for and gore. All sins are forgiven once and for all. When you come to Jesus, he gives you his perfect life. So that when you come before God the Father, and God the Father's wrath and anger towards sin, he does not see your sin. He sees Jesus' perfect life in exchange for yours. It's like doing, have you ever seen the show uh, Trading Houses or Trading Spaces? And you go to somebody's house that is a mess, that is disgusting, and they go to maybe your clean house. Jesus takes your junk, and you get the perfect place. Amazing. That's what we get. We grow in holiness. We become more like Jesus, learning to live in victory over our sin. We believe that our sin does not control us, for the love of Christ compels and controls us. Number six, the source of being is declared righteous in the sight of God. The sin that you committed yesterday, the sin you may be committed this morning, the sin you will commit tomorrow or the next day is not seen by God the Father. It's taken care of by Jesus Christ on the cross. It's gone. You don't need to feel shame about that sin. You can feel convicted, which is a desire to change, but you don't have to feel the shame about it. It's gone. It's nailed to the cross. It's at the bottom of the ocean. You can't get there. Let Jesus take it for you. Number seven, we will one day rise and never experience pain, injury, or death ever again. It doesn't take a rocket scientist or somebody with lots of degrees to tell us that the world is pretty messed up. You can live probably two hours in our world and know that there's something gone terribly wrong. We as Christians believe that Jesus has completely fixed that. We believe that one day he will return and everything will be back to right the way it was intended to be. It's the power of the resurrection. This present world matters because God will return to restore all things to himself. Many people believe with this bit of an exit strategy that once Jesus returns, I'm out of here. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. That's fake theology. That's wrong theology. We believe that Jesus will return to this earth and this place will be restored. He created this one. He's not got this other thing. He's returning to us. It'll be perfect. Perfect. And so what we do, and what we believe as Church of the Lord, is we're supposed to participate in that restoration now. It's not some future thing that we can actually participate now. And then number nine, this gives us the opportunity to decide, is this true or is it not? Is Jesus Christ who he said he was? And if he is, then you have a decision to make. Do I believe what he said? Do I believe that he rose from the grave? And if you believe that, then you make a decision to follow him, you repent of your sinful choices, the things that you've done that have gone against the perfect peace of what God created, and you are forever given that forgiveness so that when you die or when you are taken away from this earth, you will not stand before God the Father for him to see your sin. Jesus has taken it for you. You can either deal with the consequences of your sin and we believe that is hell, or you can give it to Jesus and he's taking care of that for you. Friends, this is good news. We believe the gospel. This is what I've explained. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That through personal faith in Jesus, you are saved. Declared righteous before God. It's actually quite ridiculous. What do you have to do? Believe in him. Follow him. Because when you're compelled by how bad and broken you are and how perfect he is, you cannot help but live in obedience. And the decision that people are making today by being baptized is the declaration that I believe Jesus was who he says he is. And I'm putting to death my own way of life and I'm being raised to believe that Jesus is for me and he's not against me. That's amazing. we read in Galatians 2.20 that we have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but the life I now live in the flesh is by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. That's why we sing. Maybe you're sitting here like, why do these people sing? Because the love of Christ, what he did for us, has compelled us to sing. Why do those people like sacrifice so much of their money? Because the love of Christ has compelled us to do it. We can't help it. Now, unfortunately, there's a lot of fakers out there that say they've been compelled by the love of God. And if they actually were compelled by the love of God, they'd love other people a whole heck of a lot. But I don't think they've ever truly experienced the love of God because they point their fingers at people that are messing up, meanwhile forgetting that they have stuff they can point at themselves. At Church of the War, you can be guaranteed that if you walk in this room and you're trying to hold it all together, you'll be the only person trying to do that. Because we know that each and every single one of us is weak. Each and every one, single one of us is failing and falling at some point or another because we believe in a Jesus that accepts us that way and says, let's do the rest of this together. You can have the choice today to make the choice of following Jesus. I'm not saying you have to have everything figured out, but what you have to do is, number one, admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you mess up. Admit that you are fallen. You then repent of that. You say, God, I confess that I am a sinner. Number two, you then say that I need a Savior. And I believe that Savior is Jesus Christ. That because He was perfect, He could take all of my sin upon Himself for me. And then thirdly, you say, I want to follow Him. I want to follow Him. I want to give Him my life. I don't want to do it alone anymore. I want to do it with Him. And then you're also saying, I want to be part of the family. And that's pretty exciting because you get to be part of this. You get to celebrate with one another. Each of these people are not simply being baptized and they're just going to go out onto the street alone or just to their immediate families. They're going to come back up and they're going to be welcomed into this family that is Church of Reward. And we have extended families in other denominations. And in things like this, that are the extended family, and the followers of Jesus. And we don't always represent ourselves well. But we admit that here. At Church of the Lord, we say, come as you are, but don't expect to stay that way, because Jesus won't let you stay that way. Now, um, if you would like to be baptized today, you can. We bought shorts, and we bought extra t-shirts, and we have extra towels. So maybe you're sitting here today, and you're saying, wow, I need to follow Jesus The first step after you've made that decision is to be baptized. And what we literally believe is that you are lowered into the water, you're dead to that sin, and you're raised to life in anew. Uh, We do not believe in sprinkling. That is a a practice typically of the Catholic faith. Um, There's no examples of sprinkling in Scripture, but there is examples of immersion in Scripture. Jesus himself, when he was fully grown up as a man, went to John the Baptist and was baptized. And so what we believe in our following of Jesus is to be baptized. Number one, baptism is obedience. Jesus says get baptized, and so we baptize. Fully immersed. Boom, dunk. We're not doing just a little bit of sprinkling. You can do that at home when the sink messes up. This is, put you in there. Um, So number one, it's a step of obedience. Number two, it's saying to everybody in this room, I want to follow Jesus. I believe he is who he says he is. Um, If you have maybe been sprinkled as a child, you've not been baptized, you're christened. And so you can today be immersed. We don't every week have a tank like this. So it's, it's a pretty cool opportunity for you. And then finally, uh, you are baptized um, because you love Jesus. And to love him, you understand what he did for you, And you can get dumped. But before that, you need to first admit those things, that you're a sinner, you need a savior, his name's Jesus, and lastly, you want to follow him. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to pray. If you want to make that decision, you're welcome. To make that decision, you can pray yourself. Um, typically, people would say, "Repeat this prayer after me." But I don't typically know what that would look like. All I know is that you calling out to God, like the thief on the cross, saying, "Truly, you are who you say you are." And Jesus says, "Today, you will be with me in paradise." That's sincere, and truly, you are the Son of God. When you die, you will be with me in paradise. There are consequences to the bad, sinful choices that we make, and you can either suffer those consequences yourself, or you can give it over to Jesus. And he's already taken care of it. That's what what this is all about, the message that is changing the world. Let's pray, and then after that, the band is going to come up. They're going to start playing some songs. Uh, When each person is baptized, I'm going to ask them three questions. They're going to say yes to those three questions, I hope. Um, If they're not, we'll get them out of the tank. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) you missed one. Um, and we're going to immerse them in water. The band's going to be playing music in the background. Please, if you'd like to, you can ask these people their stories. Typically, at baptisms, we, um, in other churches and congregations, will tell people's stories. But at the same time, we have some people here, they don't feel comfortable sharing their stories. Some of you might not. So that's okay. You'll hear some of their stories as time goes on the Church of the Lord. Um, it's a beautiful thing. Um, so let's do that then You guys can come up. And then you guys who are getting baptized can go change. Um, and then... You can come forward, and as you come, uh, we will dunk you. Uh, it's going to be very exciting. Um, Nick, can I get you to do the PowerPoint for the songs in the last little bit? Let's let's pray. Let's celebrate. There's going to be food afterwards. Please stay and celebrate with us. Um, it's going to be a good time. Let's pray. Kids are also coming back. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, Jesus, that you, you have risen from the grave. We thank you, Jesus, that we have eternal life, meaning even though we pass away from this earth in our physical bodies, God, we live forever with you. I thank you, Jesus, that you did in fact rise. The resurrection is not a farce. And because of that, God, we get so many beautiful things. Jesus, we need you so desperately. And we thank you that you came. And he nailed to the cross everything that I have done, all of my sin, all of my shame, is gone because of you, Jesus. I pray, God, that if there is somebody here that has never received that beautiful, perfect gift, that they would respond to that today. Maybe, God, today it's just opening up to the idea that, yeah, you maybe did rise, and So, God, maybe they'll journey with us as a family from here on out. God, thank you. We love you. We're excited to have these people baptized today. We celebrate. This is not a sad thing. Yes, God, we're reminded of your pain and suffering, but you overcame all that. You're alive. And so we celebrate that today because we do not serve a dead man. We serve an alive man named Jesus Christ who is seated at the right hand of God that we will one day reunite with. We have hope over sickness, pain, agony, depression, brokenness, mental illness. It'll all be gone, Jesus. We thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen.